Let's open our Bibles. Uh, We're going to pick up in Ephesians chapter 3. And you can put your finger on Ephesians 3.14. Let me begin by asking you a question. If there was nothing that was different in your life except for one thing, you were more confident, how different would your life be? Nothing else just more confident. Well, I would imagine that there would be a lot of difference to your life. I've observed in my time as a pastor that people who are confident, uh, they tend to be more satisfied, more willing to help others in need. They're physically healthier and less affected by stress. Confidence, as it appears to me, has great benefits. Now, I'm not talking about False confidence. Okay, false confidence, the big fish in the little pond syndrome that we've observed. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about individuals who are just comfortable in their own skin. They don't think too highly of themselves. They don't think too lowly of themselves. They're just, well, they're confident. So you look at the Bible, there are a lot of different prayers throughout the Bible. I think it's instructive for the spiritual life to look at what was on the heart of a leader as they prayed. I was just in my quiet time looking at the transition between 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. And in that transition, you see the prayer of two leaders in the life of Israel, David and then his successor, Solomon. Now in 1 Chronicles 29, David prays, As he is standing up, he's raised all these resources for the building of the temple, and he prays that his son, his successor Solomon, would have a whole heart. You know what that means? It just means undivided, singularly focused on the Lord. He knew that if his son had a whole heart, that things would go well for the nation of Israel. Now, 2 Chronicles 6 is a prayer that Solomon prays. It's one of the longest recorded prayers in all the Bible. He's just finished implementing David's vision. He's built the temple. And as Solomon looks down into the future, he prays that God would be merciful to Israel if Israel were to ever stray from God. In fact, in the middle of his prayer, Solomon says, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. It's like the Romans 3.23 of the Old Testament. You know that verse. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So here, Solomon is anticipating that God's people will stray from him. And he's praying that God would take them back. So think about it. David prays for devotion. Solomon prays for repentance and forgiveness. Now we come into Ephesians, and here the Apostle Paul is praying a prayer for the church of Ephesus. And I'll give you one guess. What do you think he's praying about? Go ahead. I didn't hear anything. Confidence. 
more confidence. I, like I asked at the beginning, if, if anything, one thing were to change about your life, you were more confident, how different would your life be? And I'm suggesting, and Paul's suggesting this morning, that your life would be dramatically different. So let's take a look at the passage this morning. We pick up at verse 14. We go through verse 21. Paul prays, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length in height, in depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I tell you, I want people to pray like that for me. That is an incredible prayer in the Bible. Now, Paul leads into this prayer through humility. He says in the text, I bow my knee before the Father. When you think about humility, humility is one of those things that is easy to talk about, but much, much harder to live. I define humility like this. Humility is having a right view of myself in relation to God and in relation to others. And humble people spend time on their knees. They engage in knee time. As you study the life of Paul, you quickly learn that he advanced the gospel by kneeling. Now, you wouldn't necessarily expect Paul to be the kneeling type, because as you look at this guy, I mean, he is a can-do type. He's an advancer. He's always ambitious with his approach to advancing the kingdom of God. I remember what he says in Romans 15.20. He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's ambition. Here you have this entrepreneurial type. He doesn't sink down roots in any one place, but instead, he wanted to go to the places where no one knew Christ. As you look at the book of Acts, there's this like flurry of activity around Paul. And yet, it's always balanced with his prayer life. Paul prayed. Paul advanced the gospel through prayer. Now, why do humble people pray? Well, humble people pray because they acknowledge that nothing spiritually good can happen without God's enablement. Notice how I qualify that spiritually good. There's plenty of things that can happen while you are prayerless, and, and some people might even consider those good things, like you can make a lot of money without prayer. 
You can uh, perform well at work without prayer. You can raise a child who goes off to one of the top premier schools and gets the best kind of job without prayer. You can retire in a community that is a dream community without prayer. In fact, you could even be a pastor of one of the fastest growing churches in America without prayer. But I want to suggest that without prayer, those activities will not have the blessing of God or the power of God behind them. They will not be eternal in consequence. They will be immediate in consequence. I saw an example of this humble, prayerful leadership just this week. Uh, You may be aware that the elders have just come around and, and called a new chair into the chair position, Nick Kleppel. And I am really excited about this. I think the elders are living that leadership baton vision that we've talked about, raising up the next generation of leaders, empowering the next generation of leaders. So this past Thursday was Nick's first meeting leading as the chair. Now, what we typically do in our meetings is we spend some time praying and we care for one another's souls. So the elders were going around the room sharing prayer requests. And I'll say this, without going into the details, the mood of the room was weary. Elders, pastors, any one of us can get weary. You know, life presents circumstances that can be tough and challenging. So we finished this time of prayer, and Nick just pauses us, and he says, can I offer up one more prayer? And then he goes, and he he prays into the weariness. He brings it before the Lord. He, he cares for the souls of the men in the room. And I'll tell you guys, that is knee time right there. Kneeling is not necessarily a physical posture as much as it is a spiritual posture. And when you are weary, you bring your burden, heavy laden soul only to one place, to the God of the universe. Uh, Some of you thinking, Rob has just called out the Kleppels two weeks in a row in a sermon. Well, you guys heard what I just said. Nick became the new chair, and I am sucking up right now. (laughs) So look at Paul's prayer with me. You see, Paul prays for these Ephesians, and he prays for confidence where it counts. He prays for inner strengthening through God's Spirit. He does this by articulating parallel thoughts. In verse 16, he says that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And then verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's the same truth. The Spirit's strengthening activity is the same as Christ's indwelling presence. This is praying for confidence where it counts. Because if God is going to change anything about your life, he must begin from the inside and work out. We tend to fixate on the outer person. How do I appear to others? How do I look physically? What, what circumstances are going on in my life right now? Those are externals. Uh, do I have all of my needs and most of my wants? 
We even spend lots of money alterating the outer person. But I'll tell you, when you look at Scripture, Paul doesn't pray for the outer person very often at all, because here's the truth. Even if my outer person is horribly disfigured or my external circumstances are going horribly wrong, if the inner person is confident and strong, then I am confident and strong. On the flip side of that coin, I could have every one of my external desires met. But if my inner person's a mess, then I am a mess. So, Paul's talking about here is your inner person being your deepest need. Your deepest need is that aspect of our mission statement, transformation. John Maxwell explained that transformation comes in six stages. He said this first stage is that when you change your thinking, you change your beliefs. The second stage is when you change your beliefs, you change your expectations. Third, when you change your expectations, you change your attitude. Fourth, when you change your attitude, you change your behavior. Fifth stage, when you change your behavior, you change your performance. And finally, when you change your performance, you change your life. Now look at those steps for just a minute. How far back do you need to go to actually affect life change? All the way to stage one. It begins here. But we tend to fixate upon behavior. Think about if your marriage is struggling and you're praying into that situation. Lord, help my wife to see all these things that she's doing wrong and to kind of come over to my side because she really needs to understand this. That's behavior modification. I need to instead be praying for her inner person. And here's a novel thought my inner person or what about our children we often pray for behavior modification in them lord they they just need to change these things about themselves and then they'll be the perfect child that i always wanted no you need to pray for inner transformation i love what sam storm says when you pray for someone you love and care about pray that jesus might exert a progressively greater and more intense personal influence in their souls, you got to go all the way back to stage number one. You see, we're talking about confidence here. Now, confidence, I want to suggest to you, is a subjective feeling. It's subjective. Sometimes I might feel more confident, and other times I might feel less confident. Objectively, if I look at the Bible, the Bible tells me God loves me. But do I always feel like God loves me? No. Sometimes I think, well, how could God love me? How could he love someone as messed up as I am? Or I might even think, you know, what have I actually done to earn God's love in some way? You see, the confidence problem is not a theological problem. It's an experiential problem. I read a story just this week that captured this dynamic for me. While serving in Vietnam, a man named Dave Rover suffered burns over 90% of his body when a phosphorus grenade he was about to throw exploded in his hand. Now, life-changing event, 
David would first go off into the hospital. He would spend 14 months in the hospital. They transported him to the United States, and as he was beginning to recover, he just knew that his life was different moving forward. In fact, he wondered, what good am I to anyone anymore? Now, the problem was compounded in the United States when his roommate had received a visit from his roommate's wife. She came into the room and approached his nightstand, and she placed her wedding ring on the nightstand, and she said to his roommate, we're through. We can't have a life together like this. I've got to move on. Dave recalls the man shaking and weeping in his bed for hours. And he passed away two days later. You can imagine having just witnessed that, anticipating the visit from your wife. Charred from the midsection of his body up, when Brenda, his wife, came into the room, he just dreaded the thought of how she was going to react to him. But Brenda, she was a godly Christian woman. And as she approached Dave, she bent down and kissed his disfigured face. And she had a little bit of a sense of humor. So she said to him, honestly, Dave, you know, all things considered, this is actually an improvement. <laughs> I'll tell you guys, don't marry someone for the looks. Katie tells me all the time she didn't marry me for the looks. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Now, Brenda looked down at Dave and she said, you know, Dave, I love you. I'm always going to love you. And we are going to get you out of this bed and back on your feet again together. And guess what? Dave recovered weeks later. He was able to leave the hospital. Now, as I look at that story, just like Dave needed to know how much Brenda loved him, you and I need to know just how much Christ loves us. I mean, look at verse 17 again. Paul says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So we go to this text, and Paul is telling us that your entire faith life is rooted and it's grounded. Those two metaphors there. So love is the soil upon which your faith grows. Love is the foundation upon which your spiritual life is built up. The Holy Spirit plays an instrumental role in this. The Spirit of God grows your confidence in the love of God. And as the Holy Spirit does this, the text says you are being what? Filled with all the fullness of God. Meaning, you're becoming all that God wants you to be. You are growing to be more like Christ, who the Bible says is the fullness of God. So as Jesus grows within you, you are rooted, you are grounded to be more loving like he is loving to be perfected like he is perfect, to be made holy like he is holy. But don't miss the point here. Love provides the nurturing environment for any person to grow and expand. 
Do you tell the people in your life that you love them? I've come to believe that you cannot tell the people that you love that you love them enough. In your marriage, do you tell your wife, do you tell your husband that you love them every single day? Or with your parenting, I, I, I would suggest that your child should never go one day without hearing, I love you, coming out of your mouth. If you're single, the people within your relational sphere who are closest to you, they need to hear regularly, I love you. Now, some of us might say, well, doesn't it become overstated at some point? And I'm telling you, I don't think so. As I look at the Bible, God says it all over the place. And if he doesn't think it can become overstated, then I shouldn't. Now, here's the ironic thing about the love of God. Paul says that God loves you so much that you can't even fully grasp how much he loves you. So he prays that the Holy Spirit would actually cover the distance between my lack of understanding and that which is true, the depths of God's love. Because here's the reality in all of this. If you could ever truly grasp how much God loves you, you would never struggle with confidence again. Never. How do you grasp what's beyond you? How do you plumb the depths of that which is bottomless? No matter how much you know of the love of Christ, there's always going to be more room to learn more, to experience more. That leads me to believe then that the love of Christ is not something to be intellectually mastered. It's something to be rested in. You rest in it. Now, don't hear me diminishing intellectual inquiry. I think it's important to read good theology, to study your Bible, to know what the Bible says. But at the end of the day, something as simple as Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is a truth to be rested in. I remember a young lady where I, I met earlier in my ministry who had a disconnect between the intellectual pursuit versus the experiential pursuit. So she knew a lot of things, but she didn't necessarily have those things grounded in her heart. Now, she was a great young lady. She was erudite even. She would go deep into subject matter. But one week she came up to me and she said, you know, I'm just, I want to go deeper in God's word. I want to go deeper than Jesus loves me, this I know. And I get where she's coming from. I mean, sometimes spiritual content is so watered down that the beautiful truth becomes cheapened. You're told Jesus loves you, but then you're never given any kind of robust, substantive, theological grounding of what that love means. So one of two things happens. Either you take it for granted, you become tone deaf to it. You're told so often that God loves you that eventually it's like, okay, well, I've heard that a thousand times. Or secondly, you take it, uh, you take it to be cliche. It's just one of those kind of pablum things that people talk about sometimes, and I want to move on to deeper truths in the Bible. Let me just say this. 
You never grow beyond Jesus loves me, this I know. You just don't. I mean, it's the bedrock of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only special son. Now, that's not a cliche verse. It's one of the most impactful verses in all the Bible. You should come back to it year after year, generation after generation, and say, praise the Lord. He loves me because the truth is, as we're learning from Paul's prayer, Jesus loves me more than I'll ever know. The contrast to this story of this young lady was a man that my dad visited on his deathbed. If you don't know my father, my father is a pastor. He's been in ministry for quite some time. I won't give you the number of years, but quite some time. And this man had walked with Jesus for much of his life. He had experienced the highs and the lows of discipleship. Those moments of supreme joy. Those moments of closeness with God and also the valleys, the painful times. I think it's an important question to ask yourself. When your time comes, what are you going to be thinking about? What are you going to do? What are you going to say? Some of us, as I approach that question, we say, I don't know. But I want to suggest to you that that's the wrong way to go about that because you want to come to the Super Bowl prepared, not just show up to the Super Bowl. Well, this guy, he came to the Super Bowl prepared. Now, a couple of things he didn't do. He didn't in that moment, wax eloquent on some theological treatise. He didn't go on and explain to my dad his particular position as to when the rapture happens. No, he sang. He sang, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. Friends, that is a picture of rest. And Paul is praying that your confidence in the love of God may grow so that you can rest in that truth. Now, as he closes out this prayer, Paul reminds us that our confidence in God must be grounded in God himself. My confidence must be grounded in God's power because, yeah, it's important to know that God loves me, but I also need to know that he is capable. As I ask the question, can he hold me up in that love? Is he able to deliver in that love? And the biblical answer, of course, is yes, he can. Look at verses 20 and 21 with me. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly then all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Why can I be confident in God's power? Let's unpack that a little bit together. You can be confident because he is able to do meaning that God is always at work. He's always moving in your life. He's never idle. He's never inactive. He's definitely not dead. 
He is able to do what you ask. He's a listening God. He hears your prayers. In fact, he gives us this gracious invitation to bring every burden in my life, every joy in my life, every thanksgiving in my life to his throne. He is able to do what you ask or think. He knows your thoughts. He knows those places that are so deep and so raw in your heart that sometimes you don't even want to ask him for them. But here, we learn that God knows the unspoken concerns. He knows them, he sees them, and he responds to them. He is able to do all that you ask or think. So here we see that God not only knows your thoughts, but he knows all and can perform all. There's nothing that transcends or outstrips his power. He is able to do far abundantly more. Your thoughts, always too small, always limiting, always subpar when it comes to God. I love the Greek. The Greek is superabundance meaning that God will exceed your expectations of him by extraordinary degrees. And if that wasn't enough, then think on this one. This incredible power is the same power that the Holy Spirit is working in you. Now you say to me, well, I don't fully get that. Good, I don't either. But I know that God's word says it, I know that I can celebrate it. And now I have to be asking myself the question, how do I access that in my daily life? You see, it's all about access. And access is a key to the Christian life. Think of this story. There was a young couple. They had just finalized their wedding vows and they were heading for their honeymoon. They put a lot of money into you know, kind of spoiling themselves with a beautiful hotel, a luxury hotel they bought into the bridal suite. Now, after spending all that time and energy in the wedding and, uh, you know, going through the reception, they, they, they arrived at the hotel pretty late in the evening. And when they stepped into the room, the only thing on their mind was, I just want to lay down in that king-size luxury bed and go to sleep. When they get in the room, they notice a couch, they notice a chair, they notice a table, but no bed. So they start scouring the room, looking, maybe there's something we missed, and then they notice that the couch has a hide-a-bed in it. It was a fitful night of sleep, lumpy mattress, missing springs. The night's ruined. The husband decides the next morning that he is going to go downstairs and give the clerk a piece of his mind. So he storms down there. He starts railing about, oh, you know, I can't believe. And the clerk's like, oh, hold on a second, sir. Let me take a look at your reservation. And then he pulls up the reservation. And he says, oh, my, there must be some mistake here. Didn't you open the door to the bridal suite? A little embarrassed. The man goes back up to his hotel room, and the door that he thought led to a closet was the door to the bridal suite. Oops. Inside, 
is a beautiful king-size bed with a fruit basket and boxes of chocolate and rose petals. You see, here you have this individual who has access, completely available, yet totally overlooked. You see, Paul's praying for us so that we would not overlook what we have in Christ. Don't reduce your walk in Jesus to a list of do's and don'ts, boxes to be checked. Don't reduce it to some kind of compartmentalized spiritual life where I have my church life, I have my work life, I have my normal life. Don't miss out on the soul satisfaction that could be yours if you would just abide in Jesus and walk by the Spirit. Open the door. I love watching Christians open the door. In our Thrive group, we've been looking through a series on our identity in Christ, and one of the members of our Thrive group opened the door this week. He said, I can't believe that I am a co-heir with Christ. He's like, I'm looking at this truth, the Bible's saying it, but it just, does, it just feels too good to be true. Friend, you open the door. And I'm telling you, there are doors like this all over the Bible. So it's not a matter of access or availability, it's a matter of access. Let me ask us to do something as we close our time. Would you bow your head and close your eyes and give God your attention right now? Attention, in my opinion, is one of the rarest commodities right now. There are so many things that grab your attention every week. But for this moment, would you just give God that rare commodity, your attention? You see, when we talk about doors, the first and most important door that you must open is to trust Jesus as your Savior. I'm talking about all of these doors, uh, the love of God, being a co-heir with Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit, but I'm telling you, friend, this morning, you can't open any of those doors until you open that first door. The Bible says this, that Jesus died for your sins. He laid down His life for you. The sins that you committed, He bore upon His own body on your behalf. The Bible says that he lived the life that you couldn't live. He lived a perfect, righteous life, and in Christ, by faith, you get that perfect life. He rose again from the dead, meaning that he is the author of life. He is the defeater of death. He wants to be your Lord, the Bible says. And it all begins by opening that first door through faith. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you want to open that door this morning, I invite you there in the quietness of your heart to pray this prayer with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you're the only Savior and the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment. 
as best as I know how, I turn my life over to your care and control. Amen. Amen. Well, friend, if you open that door this morning, that's a big door to open. God bless you for that. And your next step in your faith journey is to let someone know that you've started walking with Jesus because the Christian life is about walking in this life together. So tell a friend, maybe if you want to let the church know there's a connect card in the seat back in front of you, you can just indicate there that I've put my faith in Jesus for the first time and we're here to walk with you.